And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, January 26th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, telework works, and now there's proof. Plus, how an upcoming Supreme Court decision will affect agency rulemaking. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department is entering what it calls a third phase. This is where the lab takes everything it's learned over the last several years about changing the culture of procurement and begins applying it at a deeper programmatic level. For more specifics on the initiatives in Phase 3, Executive Editor Jason Miller spoke to the lab's digital transformation lead, Scott Simpson. So I think the beginning of Phase 3, just like the beginning of Phase 1 and the beginning of Phase 2, is going to be inward-facing. And, and I'm not going to try to speak out of turn for our director or anything like that, but DHS is our mission, and making sure the DHS mission is met is always going to be our number one priority. And so we are going to start small, fail small, learn fast, before we take this out on the road to other federal agencies. And so we're starting with, you know, in-house projects, with what are some of our policies that are getting in the way of our acquisition workforce? What are some of the bigger things that trip people up that we can work on together to find a common solution? In FY22, we deployed the Pill Idea Competition. And one of the first Pill Idea Competitions was sponsored by our policy office. And we have uh, the Appendix G process, uh, which looks at um, uh, security. And it was a real process to go through Appendix G. Uh, And so we got all this feedback about, well, how can we streamline this process? And that's what really helped us start thinking about the bigger picture. And so I think that we're going to start tackling those issues uh, at the home front and then once we get a bit more information, that's when we can start talking to people and facilitating them at other agencies to say, hey, this is our experience here at home. This is how you can do it over there. And it's similar to the approach that we had in phase two. Uh, in phase two, we started with the, uh, the coaching clinic and we started coaching uh, external teams. And our hope with coaching external teams was always that we were going to coach the coach. And so if we went to a GSA, for example, we would coach the GSA team just like we would coach our DHS team. But there would be a, uh, a coach in training on that team, someone in the right seat, right? And so as you get ready to land, that coach takes over so that the next one that needs to take off, that coach can be a- a- on the board. And it's you know, spreading the wealth, uh, spreading the good news so that, what's the old adage there? You, you give a man a fish, right? He eats Teach for him a day. to fish, right. Teach him to fish, and they're innovating forever now. So we're trying to spread that good news like that. And so that, that leads right into our phase three. I did an interview with Army Contracting Command up in Aberdeen, Maryland, and the person who runs Aberdeen Contracting said, first thing I did when I got there is I looked at our policies and said, why do we have these policies? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you feel like, and maybe because you did this review already once, sometimes policies come up for no reason or because they come up for, uh, it's, well, something bad happened once and now we have a new policy, now that policy... And five years later, we don't remember why we have a policy, but we mm-hmm. do, and everyone follows it. And that can bring down the, uh, the, the time to, to get procurement out. Do you, is that part of the hope here is to look at some of those policies and say, okay, what, do we, what don't we need anymore? What, what can we say whatever problem it was solving, we fixed long ago? Yes, exactly. And we're really looking to our, our users to, to identify those policies for us. 
you know, I, I've been out of contracting for four years now. I haven't had a warrant or signed anything in, in a while. Uh, and so, and it's sad for me to say that because I really liked having the warrant and signing all that stuff. It was terrifying but fun. And so we're really looking for them to say, hey, this, this policy is in the way. Why was it there? And we can bring everyone together then and we can start answering that question about why was it put in place? Is it still needed to be in place? If it is, what can we do to, to streamline that? Uh, and so one of the big things that we're hoping to do in um, FY24 is we're looking at having something like a hack the policy where we say, hey, we've heard from users that uh, X policy is, uh, is problematic. Let's get the policy owner on board. Let's get some of these users on board. Let's bring legal on board. And let's all talk about how we can address this policy so that everyone's concerns are met. Do you already have folks have a list that they've given here. Scott, oh, yeah. we got to do these 10 first or these 12 first. We, I think everyone's got a backlog of policies, right? I think that's that's probably the, the frustration that is just uh, that grows among acquisition folks is why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just do it. Yep. And, and well, have you ever asked why? No, because I'm too busy and right. I just have to get this, whatever I'm buying out the door because the mission needs it. Mm-hmm. The other side of, of phase three, I guess you, you talked about, is this idea of culture change. And, and I think that's the other piece of, of things you can do to go faster. Where is the biggest obstacles remaining on culture? Is it just the straight education or are there real you know, concerns about, well, if I do something wrong, I'll get in trouble. And like, yeah. where, where do you see the big uh, obstacles still? So I think the big obstacle is unlearning, actually. There's this concept of being an infinite learner and it's really hard to be an infinite learner. And being an infinite learner means having the ability to learn something, unlearn that, and learn the next thing. And for so long in in our work series, we were not infinite learners. We were focused on, here's what it says, here's what the FAR is, you learn this, and then once you learn that, you can apply it forever. And, And so it's unlearning the learning process that we had in place. And so, you know, like when I was coming up as a young contracting specialist, I would go to my contracting officer and say, hey, I want to do this within this section of the FAR, but there doesn't say anything. And so she would say, well, where does it say that? Go and look to that section and apply that. And so I would turn to FAR 15 to contracting and negotiations and apply that to an 8.4, you know, GSA acquisition, simplified acquisition. And that's, that's not what I should be doing, right? When I'm looking at the FAR, when there is no answer, because it doesn't have the answers to everything, I need to say, okay, I can engage my own critical thinking now, and I can innovate. And so part of it is unlearning that process that I talked about, and part of it is learning that I have permission to do that. And I'm not going to get in trouble for that. Um, If I take the, the leap, you need to have the courage to lead. And so we're trying to instill upon the workforce that courage to go and take the leap and, and the permission to innovate and the ability then to re-engage their critical thinking, uh, which for so long has been kind of pushed back on when you say, hey, I've got this new idea. Uh, and someone says, no, that's not how we've done it before. Let's just do it that way because we know we didn't get a protest or whatever else. You talk about training. You talk about the, one of the things that PILL does is the coaching clinic you mentioned. Uh, you're looking at the next level of training. Talk a little bit about the, the self-service option that you're starting to, to, to discuss and see how that could work. Last year, we trained uh, over 1,600 people in just one of our courses. We know that there's a demand for that, but we also know that people learn in different ways. And so for some people, like learning in a classroom is, is good, and some people learning in an online class is good. Uh, but we want to push that out more to learning at your own pace, right? And so we're working with our Homeland Security Acquisition Institute 
to find the right learning module to, uh, to keep pushing forward in that, that kind of learning environment. What does that look like? What is the content like? Because one of the things we're really heavy into is we don't want someone just sitting there listening or watching slides and click, click, click. We want it to be engaging, right? We know that um, adult learners learn by doing. And so we want to keep engaging them throughout the class via um, whatever uh, new methodologies they have, scenario-based learning, uh, reactive learning, going out and doing it learning and coming back. So we're working with uh, our Homeland Security Acquisition Institute to, to figure out what is that right first step. We're hoping in the next FY we push out at least one module uh, and once we get that one module done, then we've learned how to do it for other modules, and we can start building a whole series of um, innovation modules to, like, let out for people. Uh, our first couple of ideas for that are um, a module around how to facilitate uh, an evaluation. Because, believe it or not, that's not something that's taught often in our regular kind of con courses. Uh, but it would be, you know, a scenario-based kind of thing. You know, X, Y, and Z is buying uh, this thing. You're coming in to do the evaluation, and here's your evaluators, and here's what you're going to do. Here's how you walk through that. And now you can take that, and the next day you can apply that to your own evaluation. Similarly, we're looking at one about uh, far swim lanes and the, the flexibility that you have in each of them uh, in an 8.4 federal supply schedule versus a, a 16.505 uh, fair opportunity. And what do those two things look like? How are they different? How are they the same? And if, if I only have... Uh, you know, an hour, and I just want to go through 8.4, I can stop there and then move on. But uh, those are the kind of first two things we're going to start tackling. Uh, but we do really want to stay engaged with people. We don't want them just click kind of through and, and get their CLPs. We want them to learn something. And so we're going to be working with our users uh, and our customers first to find out, hey, is this something that you're interested in? How are you going to stay involved? And then uh, doing small pilots, refining, iterating, and then pushing back out. Scott Simpson, Digital Transformation Lead for the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how an upcoming Supreme Court decision will affect agency rulemaking. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Federal employees who make rules on behalf of their agencies are wondering if the Supreme Court will change the ground rules. In Loper, Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo, herring fishermen suing the Commerce Department say basically Congress lets agencies get way too far in rulemaking. For some perspective, we turn to the chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States, Andrew Foyce. Andy, good to have you in. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And is it fair to say that agencies that do rulemaking and also ACUS itself are watching this pretty carefully? Yes, uh, agencies, certainly ACUS as well, and um, academics and lawyers all across the country, because this has the uh, potential for being an extremely significant case. Loper is one of two that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on last week on February 17th, along with a companion case called Relentless. And both those cases pose the same issue. And the decisions in these cases will be amongst the most important of the term, if not in many years. If it wasn't for the Trump cases, they clearly would be on top. Because the real issue at stake is something that's known as the Chevron deference doctrine. And that's an important doctrine, not only in administrative law, it's sort of the Miranda of the administrative law world, but it's also one of the most significant cases in the law in general. 
What it basically is, it's a power struggle between the judicial branch and the executive branch with the Congress caught in between. And what the court is presented with now is whether to uh, reaffirm, modify, or overrule Chevron entirely. And Chevron's been around for a long time. It comes from a case called Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council that was decided 40 years ago in 1984 and has been cited by the Supreme Court over 100 times over the course of those 40 years. But when you look at the case right now, specifically before the Supreme Court, herring fishermen were required to have a federal inspector aboard their boats for purposes of conservation and making sure that herring wasn't overfished, I guess. But then the herring fishermen are obligated to pay for that person's salary, which in some cases is higher than they pay the captain. I mean, isn't that in particular, in the narrow sense, is a pretty egregious overstep, maybe, of agency's authority. Well, it certainly is if you're a herring fisherman. Um, But sometimes facts of a case or the decision in a particular case, who wins, who loses, is not as important as what happens around the law. And inciting Chevron in those cases, the lower courts said that the uh, Commerce Department had the ability to issue those rules because of the way they interpreted their statute, the, the statute that was giving them the power. But the uh, plaintiffs are saying, no, no way, that's beyond your authority, and we need to move away from Chevron. So let me talk about Chevron for just a minute so we know what we're talking about. It's a doctrine that kind of oddly, unlike most Supreme Court doctrines that come sort of from the top down, this one sort of bubbled up from lower courts up. And it was really um, the late Judge Patricia Wald of the D.C. Circuit who named this the Chevron Doctrine. As the doctrine developed, it established two steps because the question is, does an agency have the authority to do what it wants to do under its statute? So the first step is to look at the statute itself and in a Scalia-like textualist way, determine whether the statute is clear or not. And if it's clear that the agency had the power to take the action that it did, then game over, agency wins. However, what do you do when the statute is unclear, ambiguous, confusing? Which so many of them are. So many of them are, because that's how Congress writes them, either intentionally to make political deals or just saying, well, we can't work out you know, all the compromises here. Let the executive branch do it. That's why I say they're caught in the middle. So under Chevron, when the statute is ambiguous or unclear, the court will chip away a little of its own power and defer to the agency's interpretation of that statute if it is reasonable. That means that even if the court thinks that the agency's interpretation is wrong, the agency still wins if it's reasonable. So that's why agencies are so concerned about Chevron being overturned, because it would really take a bite out of the power they have vis-a-vis the courts. We're speaking with Andrew Foyce. He's chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And we should probably say it may not affect ACUS that much because rulemaking, the process itself, would not change. It's just the extent of the rules that agencies could propose is what would be limited. Yeah. And, you know, we get involved more in those procedures, those processes that the agencies use, trying to help them to improve them across the board, regardless of what the legal rubric is around it, such as a doctor like Chevron. And we have seen cases in recent years where agencies were found by the courts to overstep. I think there was an EPA rule on waters where people essentially successfully argued a little pond in my farm is not a waterway of the United States. It's not connected to anything. It's not going to pollute the Ohio River, in which case the EPA was rebuffed, I think, by the Supreme Court. So there's a little bit of precedent here. 
Yes, and that is one of the cases that have shown that the court has been slowly over the years moving away from Chevron on its own without directly challenging it. And they've been taking up, as in that case, uh, I think it's West Virginia v. Uh, EPA, they've been taking up a new doctrine called the major questions doctrine, which is a little simpler. It's just one question. If an agency is trying to do a really big thing, if the regulation involves a big deal, like what are the waterways of the United States, that would apply you know, to a lot of water all over the country. In order for the agency to regulate a major question, the authority from the Congress has to be clear. You know, you look at step one, it has to be clear, unambiguous, specifically granting the power to the agency when the stakes are high. A lot of room for wiggling still. What is a major question? When are the stakes high? The court didn't flesh that all out, but that'll get fleshed out over the years. So, so a lot of scholars and academics believe that that's the way the court is going to head in these two cases, is not necessarily overturn a 40-year-old doctrine that a lot of people would be upset about under stare decisis. The government argued that this would upset how things have been done for 40 years. Sure. But in those 40 years, I mean, look at how much the administrative state, if you want to call it that, and I'm trying not to make a political judgment here, but that's just a term that's convenient, tens of thousands of pages, hundreds of thousands of pages of regulation. And you mentioned this is a power struggle between the courts and the executive branch. I wonder, could it be also looked at as perhaps the court trying to impose on Congress some discipline over which Congress has seemed to have no discipline for the past 40 years? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I said that Congress is caught in the middle. Both branches are saying, you know, give us more direct authority more quickly, but the courts particularly. But even then, the courts are chipping away a little bit of their own authority because traditionally it's been the court's job to say what the law is. I think there was a justice once that said the law is what we say it is. Yes, right. Exactly. I forget which justice it was. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember either. But, but whether the statute is ambiguous or clear, you know, courts traditionally you know, make those decisions. But under Chevron and now major questions, they are encouraging the Congress to perhaps do something that is not all that easy or even possible to do, and that's to make these statutes clear so that agencies understand what their authority is. Well, let's propose then, suppose the Supreme Court does overturn the Chevron deference in its decision. We don't know what it's going to decide. It seems to be leaning that way based on the questioning that was heard. And in the absence of any new laws being written in the interim, what do you think the practical effect will be for agencies? for EPA, for commerce, for the rulemaking major agencies? It's going to take the effect of reining them in, frankly. That will be something that the Biden administration or any Democratic administration would be very concerned about because when you can't get legislation through Congress, the next thing to try to do is to regulate it. But the politics of this and how agencies feel and observers feel about it really kind of has flip-flopped over the years. In the 1980s, when uh, Chevron first came down and the Reagan administration uh, was in power, they just loved Chevron. You know, we get to do the non-regulating or the regulating in our way that that we want to do. But then it flipped over the years. And when Democrats became in power, then liberals switched positions and began to be big supporters of Chevron, where they had opposed it during the early 80s. And yeah, as you said, the administrative state, such as such as it is, people call it that. Some people don't like that name. But it's certainly true that there are more agencies and there are more regulations, you know, by factors and factors exponentially than there used to be. But uh, without Chevron, I think you're going to find more of an effort to work things out between the uh, executive branch and the Congress. 
Yes, and ultimately you could look at regulation as existing in a tension between liberty and the fact that we have a very crowded, complex society, and what someone does has a lot of effect on other people, which may not give them the right to have that effect. Therefore, you need regulation to have ground rules so we can live together, and again, liberty on the other side. And there is really no right answer. I mean, it's a constant... It's a balance. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant balance. And in this simple case of herring fishermen, they don't want uh, you know people looking over their shoulders, much less people that they have to pay to look over their shoulders. And for the rest of us, it'll mean more expensive herring. <laughs> and that's a good kettle of fish to think about. There you go. <laughs> Andrew Foyce is chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure for being here. Thanks very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Army updates its strategy to find fresh civilian employees. But first, telework works, and now there's proof. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. It's one thing to be controlled at work. Everyone has dealt with controlling bosses and coworkers who try. It's another thing to be in control of your work and your life. And one thing can make the difference. For what that is, here's longtime federal management professor Bob Tobias. And Bob, what can make the difference between being controlled and being in control? The single word answer, Tom, is telework. Telework. And interestingly enough, OPM just recently reported that 87% of those federal employees eligible to do telework last year actually participated in the program. And they also reported that more agencies were meeting their performance standards. And finally, they reported that employee attitudes, recruitment, and retention also increased. Now, for me, I think there's a direct link. I think that attitudes and, and retention and recruitment and performance increased because 87% of those eligibles were doing telework. What's interesting to me is that whether you're a GS2 or you're a member of the SES, when you have more control over your work, when you work, you perform more work. Yes. I mean, that has been stated by a lot of teleworkers that kind of wryly say, well, gosh, I work many more hours because I'm not commuting and I'll just sit down at the computer in the evening and do things. But this is primarily for knowledge workers. Is it fair to the people, and there's hundreds of thousands of federal employees that by virtue of their location basis for the work, can't telework? Well, it isn't a question of fairness, I don't think. I think it's a question of maximizing employee ability and willingness to do more work. And ironically, it was the fear of increased employee control and decreased managerial control that led managers over the years to deny requests for telework. And of course, that all turned around with COVID when everybody was forced to do telework. And what, of course, emerged is that when federal employees were given the authority to break up their workday to take care of a kid or a sick parent, they acted responsibly by returning to work 
and producing more. Trust emerged between managers and employees. And I think that's a very potent elixir. There was no trust before COVID that employees would or could or would be interested in performing more work, but COVID proved that they could and they would. Right. So that required some reorientation on the part of managers to understand what it is they needed to measure. And it's not time and attendance per se, but output and deadlines. Exactly. Exactly, Tom. And, you know, the crucial ingredient to increased performance, as it turns out, I think, is choice. Because the recently released Federal Employee Viewpoint survey revealed that Federal employees who chose teleworking at least three days of work scored 77.1 on the Employee Engagement Index. And the Employee Engagement Index measures how engaged employees are and, as a result, how much more they produce. But what was interesting to me is those who chose in-person work and did not telework, they could have, but they chose not to, scored 73.1 which is very, very close. So if you have the choice to do in-person, you have the choice to do telework, you score high. But in contrast, those who couldn't do telework because of their work or chose not to only scored 58.5. So the reality is those who are required to be in-person and don't have choice scored 58.5 on the Employee Engagement Index. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, a retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, former NTEU president before that. And I think it's fair to say, too, that the COVID probably forced the issue in the sense that there were technological means that agencies quickly employed or deployed to be able to allow a lot more people to telework than could have from a technical standpoint. In fact, a lot of the tools didn't exist five years earlier than that. And the ones that got employed, nobody had heard of until COVID forced people to use them. And so there's a technology basis, I feel, that enabled this to some degree. Absolutely. The crisis, the telework crisis, forced innovation and creativity that didn't exist before. And um, agencies purchased what they need to purchase and supported telework. So the data is clear, but I'm going to say, Tom, I don't have any data to support what I'm about to say. But many of my students reported that telework changed my family structure. And what they said was that as a result of telework, both parents were able to participate in after-school kid activity. Both parents took the responsibility of taking a kid to a doctor. Both parents could do volunteer work after work. And so it wasn't one or both parents who were going off early in the morning and coming back as ghosts in the uh, evening after kids go to sleep. Both parents are actively and able to actively engage in parenting, which I think is a quite fundamental difference, particularly in large city areas where people commute an hour and a half or two hours to and from work. Yeah, the commute is kind of a soul-crushing experience, I think, no matter where you are, unless you're, you know, somebody that can have a helicopter or a limousine pick you up. And I think even the federal bureaucracy at the managerial and appointed levels, there's less and less of that going on than there used to be. Exactly. 
let me ask you a devil's advocate question. I would trace the beginning of the erasure of the work and life boundary line to the advent of the BlackBerry, maybe the pager before that. But the BlackBerry and email meant people were on all the time. And the novelty kind of wore off after a few years. But what about the idea that when you say you're mixing your work life and your personal life throughout the day, you still at some point have to resist that tendency to have that dynamic go on till midnight? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some people manage it well and some people don't. But when you think about it and you think about the good news that has come about as a result of this technological revolution as a result of the ability of more people to do telework and more productivity, there's an ever-increasing pressure from mayors and real estate developers who have empty buildings and restaurateurs who want their boarded-up restaurants reopened to have the federal government force employees to do more in-person work. And I, I think, Tom, that that should be resisted because as a taxpayer, I want talented individuals who are really inspired to do their work, who want to stay with the federal government, and who deliver more public service today than they delivered yesterday. So I think this telework program works. It's proven to work, and it should be allowed to continue. All right. Now, if Microsoft could just fix Teams so that everyone didn't hate it, we'd really be in clover. Exactly, Tom. Bob Tobias was a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. He's also the former NTEU president. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure being with you today. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Army updates its strategy to find fresh civilian employees. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Army wants to end the days of post and pray as it recruits civilian employees. It's moving toward a more active recruitment model, focusing on candidates' career aspirations. For more on the new approach, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, Yvette Busico. We recognize that there is a lot of talent out there in the country that we need to be able to tap into. We need to push out the message that there are opportunities as an Army civilian, and they should take advantage of those opportunities. And our recruiting message has modified from, hey, you need to come in and and serve for 30 years as an Army civilian. Um, That's pretty daunting to our younger workforce. We are now adopting, and um, Dr. Schaefer has coined this term, the jungle gym model, right, where people come in, they want to do three years as a civilian and jump to something else, go to the private sector for a couple of years, and then come back in, and then go back out and maybe start a business. And they could do all different kinds of things. We're telling people that civilian service should be a part of an overarching career path. Um, it's an enabling thing. It's not, it's not an off-ramp. And that we have uh, amazing career and training um, opportunities for them to build skills that are that are just harder to get sometimes, harder to fight for um, than in the private sector. Appreciate the 
idea here of post and hope. I've heard post and pray sometimes, but many, many times when I've talked to folks like yourself, there's never a lack of people of interest. It's the best interest getting the best qualified people. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, that changing uh, recruitment strategy. You mentioned post and hope no more. What are you doing to post and recruit the best, the brightest and show people that, hey, you can come jump on the jungle gym, climb those bars, jump off, come back, go to the swing, come back to the jungle gym. How are you doing that? So in addition to things like this, taking the opportunity to engage with the press and the media and spread the word, we're doing things besides just posting on USA Jobs, right? We have revamped GoArmy.com, which is the same place you'd go in order to get recruited for the military, for the Guard or Reserve, we have a civilian tab on there. So if people are, are propensed and they're saying, hey, you know what, maybe um, serving a uniform doesn't sound like the right fit for me, letting them know that there are civilian opportunities out there right on GoArmy.com is, is one of the, the key strategies that we have. People who are interested already and know about the Army, letting them know about the breadth of opportunities for them to serve. Another thing that we're doing is expanding our online footprint, right? So instead of just USA Jobs, which is still the portal that people are going to use to apply, they can go to LinkedIn. And we are taking advantage of going to places where the people are. We are posting our jobs on LinkedIn and platforms like Yellow in order to reach out to that cohort that doesn't necessarily know, hey, I can apply uh, to an an army job. And we're also more active in the live space. We are going to career fairs in mass and we are offering on the jobs offers and like on the spot job offers for, for folks. We've given offers at Black Engineer of the Year Awards, uh, some 70 job offers there. We are going to career fairs and we are updating our procedures to try and get the security clearance process going as well. So we're really trying to make those jobs not only visible, but also accessible. We know that people are sometimes intimidated by what they imagine might be long times to hire, et cetera. And so we're also trying to demystify that process by giving people those on the spot job offers and letting them know, being more communicative about how long it takes to hire. And also we're working to shrink the time to hire times so that people, you know, we can compete more effectively in getting that talent. How big of a change was it for the army to do that on the spot job offers? Was this something that had been done on occasion once or twice before, but really you are, you all have said, Hey, this is really the best a best approach or a best practice? Or is this something you all have been doing all along, but you're being more active, more, if you will, you're communicating more that you can and are doing it? I think we've done it all along. I don't know if it was as coordinated or intentional as it is right now. It's now part of our strategy to lean forward and meet people where they are. I've seen that same thing with other folks, other agencies. I know the CIO Council, as an example, has done some of the same. Uh, let's have a career fair and make some job offers. I, I know folks in the cybersecurity world, at, for instance, at DHS and CISA, I'm sure the military services have done the same thing. The Part of this is the on-jobs offers is the reducing the time to hire. And another thing you mentioned, are there approaches you're taking to say, how can we reduce that time to hire? Because I think every agency faces that same challenge. And sometimes it's just the way it is. And people go, they, they throw their hands up and say, I don't know, that's just the way it is in government. And that it doesn't have to be is what we've seen. Reducing time to hire is 
Secretary of Defense's priority, the Secretary of the Army's priority, it's Dr. Schaefer's priority, it's our um, Deputy Assistant Secretary for um, Civilian Personnel's priority. That's one of the main things that people say, hey, this might deter me from even putting my application in. And we're getting after it, right? So on average, we have a 93-day time to hire, um, which if you're looking at our career fields, is not all that far outside the norm. Um, but right before this job, I worked in tech. Um, it took me about three months on average for some of these highly skilled jobs. It's, it's not um, too strange. And we have different skill sets that we're recruiting for. And I, I think there is a little bit higher tolerance. One of the things that we're changing is how we communicate and how we manage expectations, right? So my own experience in tech, I had a warm body that I could send an email to and say, hey, where's my package? Like, what stage am I in? Am I still under consideration? I had an experience when I applied to USA Jobs years and years ago where I, I sent my resume in and then like eight months later, I got a message back that I wasn't going to be hired, right? So of course, by that time, I had a new job, I completely forgotten about it. And obviously, I still remember it. I was very annoyed by that. And that's something that that is not an uncommon experience for the past. I would challenge everybody to give us another chance, right? I know that our team has been working directly with USA Jobs in order to improve customer experience. And one of the things that Army has done is we've stood up the Army Civilian Career Management Activity, which we have organized around our strategy. One of the things that we're doing is giving some structure to uh, having those touch points with candidates so that they we, we, we keep them warm. We make sure that they know that they're valued, that we're interested in considering them. And we are at the very least sending automated notices to say, okay, well, you've hit this, this gate right? You, we've accepted your application. It's currently being considered. You're being considered for an interview. Here's the job offer. So that people know and have some sort of certainty around where they stand in the application process. So that's that's one thing that we're doing. We're responding to the feedback that we received from the field, and we're improving the, the applicant experience. Yvette Busico is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. For 2023, the Thrift Savings Plan had a pretty successful year, setting new records for total assets, number of participants receiving a full match, and a few other things. Not to mention, the number of TSP millionaires is up sharply. For more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and I sat down with the Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, Kim Weaver. 2023 was actually a record year. We hit a record for our full match for um, FERS participants at 86.8%, and for BRS participants, uh, 84.9%. That's particularly notable for the BRS participants since they just started in January of 2018. That program just started. And it really shows the um, magic of auto-enrollment, right? If you auto-enroll somebody at 5%, um, and that's going to continue to march up for both both populations, but particularly for BRS. And then we've hit a record in terms of the number of participants who um, have some money in Roth. 
We've got about two and a half million participants or 36% of our participant base has some Roth money. I guess if someone isn't careful, they could have a higher income when they retire if they put a lot away in the TSP. It's well, fit- you can put a lot away. And if you're putting, especially if you're you're young and you're starting, if you do uniform services, for example, and you keep your money in Roth, then yeah, when you take your money out, it's it is tax uh, tax free, and so that's really the benefit of Roth, and it's particularly the benefit of Roth for any of our younger participants. And Kim, you'd mentioned that you know auto enrollment is a really big uh, indicator, really important way to kind of make sure that people are contributing a lot of their earnings towards the TSP. I know that in 2020, TSP changed the auto enrollment rate. So right. those who are contributing less than 5%, what are the ways that you try to uh, encourage or help participants get that matching, the full matching rate from the government? We have a number of outreaches. And in fact, we have a social scientist on staff. And one of the things that she's really focused on, she gave a presentation to the board last last month, was um, various ways we've tested messaging as to what resonates most with people and what drives behavior. And so um, we are constantly testing various messages. We'll, we'll, We'll take a group of people and keep a control group who get no email and then test various messages, see which one drives action, and then use that message for a larger group. Um, And that's always something that we are looking at as to ways that people who aren't contributing the full 5% are aware of the benefits for them of, of doing that. But we're also aware that people have other expenses, right? There's, there is life, there's food, there's rent, all of those things. And that, that sometimes gets in the way of saving for retirement. Well, give us an example of a type of message that you tested and that resulted in some change. Well, there are several different things. For example, as our social scientist calls it, it's temporal reframing. In other words, do you want to start saving $5 a day, $35 a week, or $150 a month? All of those are essentially, of course, the same total amount, but $5 a day was four times more effective, and it eliminated gaps across um, income levels. So a lower income person was as likely to respond to that as a higher income person. For example, for someone earning your amount of money, $50,000, 5% is about $7 a day. That was one. And what we found was that dollars per day was slightly better than leaving money on the table, which has been the standard message that all financial institutions use. And that um, was about just a couple, 3% higher than the other ones we tested. But the average increase was about $80 a month. And so by age 65, that would be an extra $40,000 in their TSP account. So Again, there's any number of ways to try and attack that that specific population. But we also look at other people, you know, who are getting closer to retirement. 
you know, did you know that you can make up catch-up contributions? There's any number of, of messaging that we do for our participants to try and get them prepared for a comfortable retirement. And will you plan on, say, testing different messages across different age groups, such as as the boomers age out, you know, that message about catch-up, versus the millennial and the Generation Z, the really young ones, coming into government? Yes, all of those. And what we find, and it's not surprising, we find this with our financial wellness, our participant satisfaction, that younger participants are are less engaged with the TSP in general. And that's not surprising. I mean, 21-year-olds can't imagine retirement. You know, they can't imagine being 30, let alone retiring sometime in their 60s. So trying to engage with that particular group is challenging, again, for for everybody, simply because they're focused on on other, other issues. You know, Kim, on the other end of things, uh, I know that one really popular topic with the TSP is how many millionaires are in the program. Do you have the latest numbers for that? I do. As of the end of calendar year 2023, there are 116,827 millionaires, and they have been contributing to the TSP for an average of 28.91 years. And I would contrast that with last year, uh, 2022, there were 76,888 millionaires, and they had been contributing for 29.5. And of course, the difference between those two is largely driven by the performance of the stock market. The stock market in 2023, especially um, toward the end of the calendar year, really took off. Um, there was about a 25% return for the C fund, a 25% return for the S fund. And so that's what drove the numbers of millionaires up for calendar year 2023. And I guess from that number that you mentioned, the, there's 40,000 more, 50,000 more at the end of last year than there were at the end of the year before, is that a lot of people were really close to just that million mark. Whereas That, the- that is, yes. It's always the case that people sort of um, trend upward. We're always adding new participants. So the number of participants who have less than 50,000 will always be a growing number. But then presumably people move up the ladder, so to speak, um, both up and down in relation to savings and and the, the market returns. Let's talk about some of the specific funds. The iFund had some changes and alterations. Let's review what went on there. The board in November approved a change to the iFund benchmark. And the benchmark um, is is what the, the fund follows, what we track. So as many people know, the, the C fund follows the S&P 500. People are familiar with that. The iFund gets a little more esoteric. We currently... Um, track what's called the MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australasia, and Far East. Not easy to say. The one we're moving to is that much less easy to say. It's the MSCI All Country World X USA X China X Hong Kong Investable Market Index. So 
what that does, what the new index does for us is it adds emerging markets without Hong Kong or China, given the X's. Um, and it adds in um, Canada. And it also adds in some small cap stocks in developed markets. So all in all, we go from about 800, uh, 800 stocks to about 5,600 stocks. Um, and we're covering now about 90% of the non-US um, equity market. So it expands uh, your ability, it expands the ability to get returns while not greatly increasing risk. Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Tune in to FedLife next Wednesday at 1 p.m. to hear the entire conversation. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.